What's going on guys, it's your man with the plan, Samuel Plan, coming back at you once again with another brand new installment of Sports Entertainment is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Thanks for tuning in guys, if you missed last week's episode you can still go catch that on demand, the way to do it is very simple. Head over to Spreaker, head over to lordsofpain.net and you can catch my last episode of SCID on demand. You can also do it through your usual podcast provider as well. Please also make sure you check out all the other great shows here on Lords of Pain Radio. We have stuff coming to you each and every single day of the week covering everything from New Japan Pro Wrestling, Ring of Honor, TNA, Indie Circuits, British Wrestling, you name it, we've got coverage for it, so do make sure you check out all the wonderful shows. You can do so by subscribing. Don't subscribe to Lords of Pain Radio, but do subscribe to each of our shows by their individual name, and that way you can make sure you don't miss a second of the great coverage we've got for you here on Lords of Pain Radio. It is another week in my ongoing project for Sports Entertainment is Dead Year 2. If, of course, you're unfamiliar with it, and this is the first time you're tuning in, I take a guest host every single week and we explore a match chosen quite at random historically either by myself or said guest to explore the themes, the creative merits, the character, the narrative, its historical importance, anything that we think is worth commenting on. It's all inspired by my book 101 WW Matches to See Before You Die which you can still go ahead and buy on Amazon anywhere in the world. And, of course, it's also the inspiration behind my second incoming book, which will be a direct sequel to 101, but will be focused specifically on the new generation era. Both of these books explore many of the benefits that come with watching your professional wrestling as performance art rather than as sports entertainment, which, as the title of my show implies, is, in my belief, dead. That's what these match explorations aim to do as well. And this week, we have another Welcome back for the second week in a row. He was here last week to help kick off the new SEID with me. He's here again this week. Welcome back again, Mav. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Um, we talked last week about Shawn Michaels versus Triple H, SummerSlam 2002, unsanctioned street fight. I had a look at that. Uh, I picked it, as I said last week, because it was a new start for SEID. It was a new start for Shawn. New start of a different kind this second week. And a match that I know we're both very, very fond of for obvious reasons as we're going to go along here. Um, a reminder that SCID is only meant to be around 30 minutes long, so we need to try and make sure that we don't gush a little too much. Um, it's somewhat of a specialist topic for us both, I guess, at this stage. We're talking about the Shield's debut in ring match in WWE. It's the Shield versus uh, Ryback and Team Hell No. TLC 2012. I've referred to this a number of times as a new beginning of a different song. What I mean by that is obviously Shield's debut. And even though I've seen a lot of cynicism towards this appointment, this uh, opinion on social media, especially when demonstrated by WWE themselves, it's an opinion that I'm very much on board with, which is the idea that the Shield is one of the most successful and important groups in wrestling history. And I think that that's true because if you look at the state of wrestling today, in October of 2019, the names at the top on both sides of this new divide that no one last year could have predicted are Rollins, Reigns, and, well, Moxley now, but obviously formerly Ambrose. And it all started, that journey all started with this match. It did, it did. I think it's so perfect because there was so much at stake in establishing these three guys as what they would go on to be. 
And I think there was cynicism, as you say, in the the community at the time. Not from me. I was like enchanted by them from the moment I saw them. But there was some cynicism in the community about about what this group would end up being. The Nexus was not that um, not that long before. And I think the first thing to say is that theme music, which is so um, which is so familiar now. But the first time they, you know, you have that sierra hotel like echo across the arena and then that kind of like you know that kind of fuzzy um guitar kind of uh intro you know as they come walking through the crowd you know and it, it just establishes them as different to everybody else in the company and it's something as simple as them entering through the arena and you know you get this sense of them as being like piratical outsiders they're here to steal everything they're here to like steal that. the main event they're here to steal um you know the spotlight they're here to to you know wipe the slate clean of people who they think uh have been the recipient of uh like unfair advantages you know they say that they're, they're shield of justice and they, they come through the crowd and just the swagger and the confidence. And of course, we'd get used to that being the Shields modus operandi. But that's that's what really strikes you is just this is their debut match. And they they own that stage. They absolutely own it. And they kind of come through the crowd. They help the barrier. And then you're straight into this this momentous brawl, you know, and you've got three of the most over guys in the company at the time representing the WWE in this kind of fight against the Shield. And then you've got these these aggressive newcomers and, and it just immediately becomes this, you know, and, and I know you, you don't want to like go to the Attitude Era comparison too much, but but it, it does feel very Attitude Era at the beginning of that, particularly in the sense that the weapons don't come out until a good five or ten minutes in. And it's very much just yeah. beating the crap out of each other in these little individual battles. But what you'll notice is the shield will constantly manage to manoeuvre away where two or three of them are on one of or two of the opposition. So every time one's left alone for a minute and he's in trouble, the other two will rush in and suddenly it's a three on one or a three on two. And actually that that's that's a that's something that happens in real sport. You know, it's all about um numbers and making sure tactically that you can put more numbers in one place than the opposition can at one time. And that's what forms an advantage. And so yeah, it's the whole setup of the match and establishing who the shield are, like in an identity, in, in identity terms, is really, really clever. We can get into, we'll, drill, well, obviously, as the show goes along, we'll drill into uh, a lot of the content of the match itself and, and uh, you know, its remarkable form. Keeping, for the time being, at least, with this notion of introducing the shield, uh, I, th- I agree entirely with what you said. And what, it's, it's, it's striking to me that the confidence that they carry even now as performers at the very top of the wrestling industry in the US is there instantly here. I mean, to say that this is their first match and we've heard them talk so many times in the past at interviews and stuff about how they had a group mentality about doing everything that you've exactly just described them doing in this story they wanted to do in real life backstage. And they, they went about with that same brash confidence. There is, there is no shortage of stage presence from all three of them 
including Roman, who didn't have the same extensive background in the indie circuit that obviously um, Ambrose and, and Rollins had. Uh, call him Ambrose because that's what he, the name he was performing under in this in, in this match. So if there are any AEW fans upset at that, I'm sorry, but that's just the way it's got to be. Um, and uh, it was it was such. I mean, you'd almost <laughs> and it feels kind of it feels kind of glib to say this, but it, you could almost be forgotten for uh, forgiven for thinking that it was the other team that were new on the scene. If you didn't have any idea, you know, if you weren't listening to the commentary, you had no idea who the shield were because they, they, which isn't me disparaging Kane, Daniel Bryan or Ryback by any means, but it's just to, to big up the, the, the ridiculous degree uh, by which, as you said, you know, the three of them just own the stage and own the ring because the lion's share of the, of the impetus in what goes on is theirs. Like they're the ones who drive as more of the action, I think, because as exactly as you just described the way that they structure the match and the way that they're always turning the numbers uh, game to their advantage and stuff. It's, it means they're the ones that are, um, that are the, the, well, I've just said it, the ones who are driving the majority of the action. Uh, which is, you know, no small, no small thing to ask a, a, a trio of new main roster promotions to do in a major pay-per-view main event. Because even though it went on in the middle of the show, it was very much one of the main events of that, if not the main event of that pay-per-view. Uh, and it, it has all of the atmosphere of a main event as well. You know, there's a there's a giddy excitement uh, as the wrestlers make their entrances, and that just blows up the longer the match goes and this is the first time the shields have wrestled on the main roster it's the first time they've ever wrestled as a single entity as a group and they're already and not to put too much weight in this but they're already getting this is awesome chance and they arrive with such identity in terms of their match style as well like this is even at the back end of the shield now this is still such this first one is such a quintessentially shield match yeah, the thing is, they, they establish their identity. Like you, you know who they are in in this match. And I think Brian Ryback and Kane are on the defensive. I think what you were just saying about how you know the impetus is with them. You know, they have to play a defensive game. Um, Team Hell No and Ryback, and it's it's really interesting to see the way they go about it. You know, like they bury they bury um, Ryback beneath uh, a load of furniture. You know, they they you know they put him for a table. They make sure that they've always kind of got their mind on isolating Brian as the smallest person in the match. Um, there's a great bit at the end, you know, like what I like to think about this as well, it's not just establishing their identity as a group, but establishing who they'd be as individual performers. You know, it's a great yep. bit at the end where Seth, as the architect already climbs up a, a ladder and lets Ryback throw him off it, sacrificing himself because Roman and Dean have now got a two-on-one yep. on, on Daniel Bryan, who they put for a table, and they win the match. That's the most shield thing ever, and it happens in their first match. Um, and they do the very same thing way forward in time against Evolution. Yeah, absolutely. I was just about to say that. And um, and even going beyond that and, and digging deeper beyond that, you know, I've spent however many thousands and thousands of words and hours and hours of podcasting talking about Seth and his character because of the emotional attachment I have to it. And, um, you know, always defined him by this indomitable willpower that can't be stopped. And it's, it's a demonstration of that. You know, this guy has the will to get thrown through tables for a great good. He has the will to clamber up onto the top of a jumbotron and launch himself off of it for the greater good. Uh, and that sacrificial sense behind everything, not just Seth does, but all three of them do is helped 
is is what helped them as a group and also you also get because the other aspect of them is that they were never afraid to show affection for one another as well which is such an unusual when you really think about it it's such an unusual trait i think particularly in villainous groups in wrestling um which are often shown as cutthroat you know no honor among thieves all that sort of stuff to to dem- there's a moment it was i think it's after i think it's after rain spears came through the barrier uh, and you see Seth and, and Roman looking down and Seth cradles him by the head and he's patting his cheek and stuff. And he's ruffling his hair. And the, just those little signs of brotherly affection like that is so rarely seen, I think, um, in, in wrestling, relatively speaking. And again, a huge part of their identity and is something that would always mark them out as well. Um, and it's interesting to me to, 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 to jump back a couple of minutes here. You mentioned that it feels like an Attitude Era match. Uh, and... And I was I was going to jump in. I didn't. I was going to jump in and say, but the better half of Attitude, you know, 97 or 2001 and not the stuff in the middle. What's interesting as I look through my notes here is I've I've noted down that its pace is not unlike the pace of uh, some of the SummerSlams we talked about in the not too distant past on the right side of the pond, SummerSlam 2001 and some of the SummerSlams I spoke about on SCID in the not too distant past. Um, about pacing and it's got such a high intensity pace that you could easily see it in a on a pay-per-view in 2001 um, where it has that broiling intensity to it and just because it is relentless like it starts before the shield have even hopped the barrier uh, and from that point on it just it, there's no pausing for breath there's no downtime something is always happening uh, and you mentioned as well the way that the shield are always operating turning numbers to their advantage and stuff I love the retributive tone to everything they do um, because it, it, it feels it feels ill-intended, ill-intended. It feels nasty and cruel. And it's and it's so uh, it's so intense as a, as a viewing experience for that. You know, when when like when Rollins curb stomped Brian on the steel chair, for example, um, and it's and it and it flows brilliantly we spoke briefly last week about genre in terms of unsanctioned matches and tlc is one with with you know obviously countless examples most of which i don't like um but in this example what you have is a case of i i can't think of another tlc that just flows and is so well knitted together as this one because it isn't jerky you don't get that weird transition where you know two guys do something then two other guys come in and do something what you get is instances of for example i've noted a couple down you know on the outside brian and and uh, sorry dean and seth are double teaming either kane or it might be ryback brian comes out he kicks seth dean then trips brian um ryback there's another point where ryback hits seth and dean with a lat was hitting them with a ladder roman hits ryback with a chair kane then grabs the chair off of reigns and it's just little you know it's a sense of cause and effect to everything that's happening and it just flows beautifully it's it's got such an impeccable sense of form to everything Uh, and i dare say that's why it comes off so well because it just i remember uh, one of my favorite films is mad max fury road Uh, and i remember seeing a critical analysis of it uh, which I'd never thought of before. And it talks about how everything, the reason why it's such an immersive film is because everything's always center frame. And, and that rarely happens in films. And it means that you're never having, your eyes never move. It's always just locked center frame. Everything's happening center frame. And it's interesting that to me, in terms of, you know, a wrestling equivalent, what you have here is you, you're never having to, nothing's, it, everything is one. It's just one linear 
it's like one line through everything you know i'm not I, i'm not expressing this very well but it's it's everything like i said it's just knitted together it's it's just one like one series of action and that's it there's no diverging it doesn't feel like it, it ever splinters off into anything it just feels like everything feeds into the next thing and so you're never your attention is never strayed it's never waning it's never nothing nothing else is happening to demand it you know it's just constantly fixed on the next thing that's happening which is there in your face before you know it i think it's important to say here that that you know the reason this TLC match works so well is because there's no belt hanging around, uh, mm. and it's it's essentially a tornado tag match under a different name. Mm. Um, so it's not really a TLC match at all. It's a it's a tornado. That's interesting. It, it's a tornado tag match where you can use weapons, and so you could pretty much put any other designation on it as well because there's no disqualification in this. So you could say it's a no DQ match. You could say it was a a uh, hardcore tag match you could say it was an extreme rules tag match which probably if this was happening today it's probably what they call it but because <laughs> it took place at tlc um they had to call it a tlc match now but, but what really made it for me in the build-up was that famous ambrose promo um the the shaky hand cam promos that they famously did uh where he was like bring ladders bring tables bring chairs you know and it was this call to arms yeah, yeah it doesn't doesn't matter what you know it doesn't matter what weapons you have we'll use them you'll use them at the end of it all we'll win um and there's this great moment in the match that really reflects that which is you know ambrose sort of like slapping brian in the face as he's out on the mat saying come on goat face come on goat face <laughs> <laughs> which is just again like i say you get their individual personalities coming out you know roman is the strong and silent type in the match you know just basically every time he's needed for a power move he's there um ambrose is this kind of mad genius um you know rollins is the guy that will sacrifice himself for the team um it's all, I mean, you talk about the wonderful nastiness, you know, I noted down, um, you know, when uh, Ambrose sets up, uh, sets up Brian on a, you know, sort of slams him on a chair and then just sort of, you know, again, sort of stares down at him and taunts him. Um, there, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of that sort of um, chippiness from the shield, I guess. Um, so I, I just think it's, uh, you know, it's it's a great example of why tornado tag matches are so compelling and why I think they should probably be used a lot more than they are. Because any time in recent history that they have been used, it's been a roaring success. I mean, if you think about, you know, I mean, I know you, you've not been a big fan of the War Games revival, but one of the things I do really like about those War Games matches, although they, they, they go a little bit too long, is the fact that you've got these great tag teams that they've got down there in NXT, uh, essentially just just going off against each other, um, which I think is 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 great. I think back to of course the other two, you know those two big Shield matches at, um, at Extreme Rules and at Payback in two two thousand fourteen. Uh, when you have that setup of of just all six guys just going after, I just think it always works incredibly well. Better than no disqualification tag team matches. Well, Christ. I mean, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of a more... Uh, <laughs> oxymoronic. Uh, yeah, yeah, just yeah. ridiculous. Anyway, I get I get sidetracked. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to start doing this on Seed was to not be quite so negative all the time, so I'm not going there. Um, but yeah, and, and because it's fun. I mean, that's the that's the take-home, isn't it? It's... it's, it's it's fun without me. I get I get annoyed sometimes when I you know when I hear people defend matches that I call stupid and they say oh well sometimes it's okay for wrestling to just be fun, and it bothers me because smart wrestling is always fun. 
There's no reason why the two have to be mutually exclusive. And when you get, um, you know, a situation where, as you were saying, it's a tornado tag match where you have a lot of bodies around wailing away on each other, like in this, and then it's done in a smart way, like this one is, it's next level. It's, it's transcendent to me. You know, it's why this one stands up because even now, because it's, it's frenetic and it's crazy and it's like a war games match, which you're right. I'm not a fan of because when I sit and watch those matches, they feel completely aimless to me and directionless, you know, and they and they demonstrate ideas. They have ideas at the heart of them, but it's just it's one idea after another with nothing really linking them together. And then it ends. And that and and that applies to the historical ones that I've gone back and revisited, include the really the really famous one from, I think, like 92 that Austin was a part of and stuff. And they just don't do anything for me because I just feel like they're formless entities, whereas this one, as I've already used the word form on this show doesn't feel that way it has all of the same chaos it has all of the same madness it still has all of the eye-popping stunts but it feels as i was saying earlier linear it feels like it goes from point a to point b and you can trace how that happens by watching carefully the sense of cause and effect like the moment where they do the triple power bomb on ryback through the table and before you can even blink daniel bryan's coming left of camera with a suicide dive into all three of them you know and it's and it's stuff like that that really i think makes it such a riveting watch incidentally i love the lead up to uh, the talking about the the sense of ownership and stage presence that the shield have here i love the sense of uh, of that when when roman barks at the announce table to move because it's his announce table now oh, you know yeah. <laughs> little verbiage like that i i i really like and it's it, you get kind of a kick of scene even though the shield do come pretty much fully formed there is still a sense of them like like the ur that range usually does isn't quite an ur yet and it's you know it's just little things like that are really always really cool to watch from a nostalgic point of view but so i guess overall what i'm trying to say is it, it it's always tit for tat it's always you know, the Shield do something, then their opponents retaliate, but it never feels aimless and it never feels scattergun. And I think that that's down to the really smart psychology at the heart of it, which you touched on earlier on in the show, which is the sense that the Shield will always gang up and, and pick apart their opposition, which would apply as much to their standard tag matches as it would to these Tornado-style efforts. But it's also, you know, things like when Roman's patrolling the outside and they're beating on, I think it's Brian in the ring, Ambrose and, and Rollins are beating down Brian and Roman's still patrolling on the outside. You can still still see him on the outside getting the odd pot shots in on on Kane and uh, and Ryback. And as you've already mentioned at the end when um you know, when uh, when Seth goes through the tables, but it's an elaborate distraction to give Reigns and Ambrose the time to get the victory over uh, Kane in the ring and they don't waste time getting that win either it's very pointed and very direct they don't just wail on him a bit more and attack him a bit more they go straight for the killer move and pin him um, and or is it on Brian it might be on Brian I it's can't on remember. Brian yeah um, and so everything feels like it's purposeful as well I mean I know I we're gushing a lot about it but it's it's worth it you know I mean it really is a multi-layered achievement yeah and I think we, we should probably say as well that you know you got to set this in the context of Team Hell No being one of the hottest things in all professional wrestling at the time. Right back having cooled off a little bit, but still being a big deal. Like, you're still getting big reactions from the crowd. Um, and, like, they play their part in this. Massively, they do. Um, because if they didn't, uh, you know, bump for the Shield and, you know, kind of allow this story of the Shields to develop, um, then you've not got the same sort of impact as this actually has. I think, like, Brian in particular, 
does an amazing job putting the shield over in this match. I mean, it's no surprise, of course, it's Daniel Bryan. Um, but given that, you know, he would be the biggest thing in the industry uh, by the next summer, um, it, it's pretty great to see him you know, giving in this way to the Shield. Generous performances on both sides. Um, and yeah, I agree entirely. And I think it's important to work to note as well that the match... It's not like the match doesn't do any favours for Team Helena and Ryback either. I mean, on multiple occasions, Ryback pretty much picks apart the shield on his own for a brief uh, spurt of time. Uh, on other occasions, there's that wonderful moment where Brian locks all three of them in successive yes locks as they try to attack him. You know, so and and it you know it's the kind of um, mutually beneficial performances um, that elevate everybody. You know, when 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 everybody's trying to make the other guy look better, everybody just ends up looking better. And that's that's the sense that you get. I love the visuals of the match, like the way that the Shields uniforms become increasingly disheveled through the course. And eventually Ambrose has shed his protective vest and they look shambolic at the end of it. But in a in a victorious way, that's really cool. And I love as well that the fact that the and i think this is another boon for it particularly being a tlc match and in terms of its genre the spots are really simple there's nothing convoluted there's no kind of bizarre setups with the ladder you know one of the reasons for example it's not a tlc match but for example i don't like the wrestlemania 24 money in the bank ladder match is because some of the spots they do with the ladders are just ludicrously um uh, they're imaginative but that they don't feel natural uh, and that's one of the you know, famously, I have a dislike for ladder matches and, and ladder match variants in WWE. And that's one of the reasons why is I just feel like they strain credulity more often than not. And what I love about this is everything's kept really basic, really simple, but done really effective. You know, people crash through barriers and crash through tables and get stomped on chairs and suplexed on chairs. Uh, but it's it never takes them, 30, you know, 13 minutes to set the next spot up. There's no placing a table in one place and they're not doing anything with it. So it just so happens to be there at the end of the match. All those kind of annoying little moments that usually take me out of matches like this aren't there because instead it feels like they allow the, uh, the flow of the action to dictate when the spots come into play. And then when they come into play, they're very basic, but they're very eye popping at the same time. You know, a superplex off a table laid across the top rope is essentially just a superplex but it looks crazy. But again, I think that's much easier when you've got two teams facing off against yeah. each other than it is when you've got, say, the Money in the Bank match and you've got like six, seven, maybe even in some of the worst variants, like 10 people like, uh, yeah. you know, going up against each other, then, then you do get that very staccato way of doing things, you know. Um, one of the most infuriating things is to play one of those on a WWE video game. And <laughs> you, you, get this, you get this little bar where your guy's done the thing where they've, ro they've rolled out and you have to wait for this bar to kind of fill up again before they can get up and get back in the ring. And and, and essentially, like, every time I watch one now, I, I actually sort of just visualise a bar above their heads and it's like, it is, oh, it they're is about to get in now. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's it's a salient point. I've, I've, I've referred to these kinds of matches and I've referred to the worst kind of indulgent NXT matches and indie matches as video game wrestling because that's, to me, how they watch. Yeah, Frank uh, that's the thing. And so I think these team scenarios where you've got, you know, like a tornado situation or whatever, where they're just, they're just facing off against each other. And, you know, that means that you can just set up these and all shield matches that, that had some sort of, some sort of no DQ step, 
have that about them. And even when you come down to like, you know, the triple threat with Rollins, Lesnar and Cena or the triple threat with uh, Ambrose, Reigns and Lesnar, like those matches had that elegance and simplicity to them as well, because, you know, there was just that good sense of, you know, there's only there's three people. Um, you've got the juggernaut of Lesnar. Well, what's the obvious thing to do? It's to team up against Lesnar. And therefore, the set, the, the, you know, the sort of the spots were very, um, you know, were very simply they, done. They they even, I mean, I've, I've written in the past about how uh, when that was, I think, first used to, to dictate the structure of a triple threat at Royal Rumble 2015, I would hesitate to say redefined, but certainly introduced a version of the triple threat away from the defining version at WrestleMania 20 that we'd never seen before because they even used it in their Shield triple threat where, where Reigns took the place that Lesnar had held in the preceding two examples of it. Um, so I think you're bang on. And obviously both of us, one of our favorite matches ever is the final four uh, in your house, February 97, which is, you know, a, a four-way match, but employs a, a, a similar idea where, you know, there's no interchanging in the middle of the ring. Everything's happened at once and it adds so much to the effect and experience of watching the match. It feels like a war. It's a war. Yeah, absolutely, it is, and and I think for these sorts of matches to be believable, that's 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 what they have to feel like. Yeah, um, and you, you got the sense of they can't they can't feel choreographed. I mean, I looked at the shield at the beginning as as you know as as pirates or or Vikings or conquerors and the Viking experience, not the the the, the sort of, <laughs> but more like the tenth century Viking experience, you know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, more no, more like the you know turn up in Linda's van and fuck things up Vikings. Um, uh, but you know they. So I think what this is is this is a beachhead. You know, like this match is then establishing a beachhead. Then they've gone to face these kind of successive, um, you know, Justice League as they were nicknamed by fans. Um, threesomes. You know, they'd get they'd get one with Jericho and Cena and Ryback. They'd get one. I think they had, like, I think without Cena. And then they had, of course, the one at WrestleMania with Big Show, Randy Orton and Sheamus. Um, and then, of course, they would kind of go off and start chasing gold as well. Um, so it's you, you get the sense of the Shield's first year in the company as being, like, you know, establishing and taking. And then when they're in a comfortable position, they take Triple H's offer to be the muscle for him until that's not convenient for them anymore. And, and so it's this great sense that the Shield are always in control of their own destiny, like through their whole run. And that starts here. And as we start to wrap up here, I mean, I said at the beginning of the show, I said last week, one of the reasons why I picked this match, obviously, was because this was the start of the Shield. Um, and it was the start of something new. And I said that the Shield have gone on to define professional wrestling since. Um Sadly, I've seen some fans balk at that. And I think a large part of that is because WWE has become so... Uh, so unpopular at this point um, that you almost, I, I dare say there's an overriding sense of not wanting to give them credit for doing something good. But The Shield is definitely one of their biggest successes, not just in recent years, but ever. Uh, and I, you listen, I don't think you can deny that, that Reigns, Rollins and Ambrose collectively have defined Western professional wrestling, at least. Uh, over the last few years, because you think about, you know, the biggest change WWE made to their product that I think was the point of no return was the brand extension and Ambrose was champion at the time and Ambrose and Rollins were the first two picks 
then. Reigns has headlined however many WrestleManias consecutively since WrestleMania uh, 31. Rollins and and Reigns have been the only two contemporary talents to uh, definitively defeat Brock Lesnar on a major stage. Uh, WrestleMania for one, SummerSlam for another, maybe SummerSlam again for for Rollins this year. You never know. Um, And, of course, Ambrose, who, you know, we always said was unfairly unfairly railed upon during his time in WWE, has shown himself, A, to not only have genuinely been the backbone we always said he was, because since he left, the product has undoubtedly gotten insufferably bad and worse. And I dare say that there is, if not a universal link between the two, certainly... Uh, he's, his absence has had a major impact on the fact that there's now no one around just underneath that main event delivering quality work on a regular basis, but has since gone on to become the single hottest prospect and talked about name, I think, in, in professional wrestling globally since his decision to leave WWE and has only shown what he's capable of quickly ascending to the top of AEW and NJPW since he left. You know, when, I think when you, when you, if you wanted to carve a historic narrative for, for certainly Western professional wrestling, perhaps to a lesser extent, global pro wrestling, Reigns, Rollins, and Ambrose, a.k.a. The Shield, you know, they're, they're at the top because even before they got to the main roster, they defined the transition between FCW and NXT. They defined the best days of FCW. So, you know, really the last, last decade at the very least um, has been theirs. I think... Obviously, people are, are massive victims of recency bias. I think that's probably yeah. one of wrestling fans' worst qualities most of the time. And I think what a lot of people have done since Ambrose has left particularly um, is they've looked back at the Shield and they've defined it um, in the terms that Ambrose used to describe the back end of his singles career. Yeah. And if you listen to that podcast with Jericho, that isn't what he was saying. You know, and he's he's at great pains to say that he loved the work that he did with Seth and with Roman. Um, and, you know, he wanted better for them as well. Um, and uh, so I think it's 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 more the case that you know, it's not oxymoronic to say that the Shield were uh, an incredible force that defined a great deal of what was good in professional wrestling for a very long time, while also recognising that things in WWE have gone haywire. I mean, particularly over the last year, but you could argue the last two or three. Um, so, you know, those two things aren't mutually exclusive. You know, you can say that the Shield were uh, a massive success and that the three men in the Shield have each been a standard bearer for what's great about professional wrestling, while also recognising that... Seth Rollins' title reign isn't being booked very effectively or recognising that um, they, Roman Reigns has gone from being shoved down everyone's throats to now being this this person that they can only define by his cancer battle. You know, like, those those things don't change what The Shield did. Um, and I think that's what's important to remember. Which, beyond anything else, was to be the first people... To, no, I'll rephrase that, to be among the first people of a contemporary generation to shatter a glass ceiling uh, that had remained intact for, pff, what, 10 years? I think they were the Almost first people to, they, they the well, to shatter well, that, really, were they say, not? I say among because of Punk and Brian before them, really, but yeah. um, uh, collectively those those five, or those three, if you want to look at the Shield as a, as a trio. Um, and certainly the Shield were 
the ones who got to the top and then stayed at the top. I think I think you know with Punk and Brian, you know, you very much I think very much now looking back historically, you'd say that they were always destined to be a, a transitional, um, you know, like transitional players, if you like. They were basically. And it's harsh to define maybe Brett, uh, Brett Hart, Shawn Michaels in this way, but you know, in the same way that that um, uh, Brett and Shawn had to had to kind of struggle through, um, you know, a less financially successful period in order to allow Austin and Foley and Triple H and um, The Rock to kind of burst through. I think you know, Punk and Brian held the door open for the Shield to smash open. You know, it's 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 one of those sorts of things. I think that's probably how I would look back at it. I think that's that's a relatively fair assessment to close the show out with. So there you go. TLC 2012, The Shield versus Team Helno and Ryback is the second match to be given the PA treatment and the 101 style analysis. If you enjoyed it, go check out last week's show and be sure to tune in next week. Uh, Maverick won't be back next week, though I hope he will be back at some point in the future. Um, to discuss more with me, maybe we'll have to do a, uh, a Sean Waltman appreciation week one week absolutely I'm, I'm all in i think you should just do you know sort of um a career retrospective on x factor <laughs> maybe that one can uh, be one of the pond's big projects after, <laughs> uh, after we've done invasion it's gonna be my, like my first book <laughs> excellent um so next week instead i will be joined by my australian namesake sir sam and we'll be venturing beyond the confines of wwe when we look at his pick of hiroshi tanahashi versus kota ibushi in the g1 climax final i think of 2018 so that'll be an interesting listen for sure in the meantime if you have any thoughts on anything mav and i have discussed about the match or the players involved in the match this week you can let them be known you could tweet me at lop plan reach me on facebook just look up samuel plan Drop me a comment on any of my columns or podcast posts on loadsofpain.net or, of course, sign up to LOP forums. And, hell, have a go at writing your own columns as well while you're at it. Or you can, of course, reach my friend Maverick here. Uh, so on Twitter, uh, Neil underscore Pollock 79. Uh, or you can obviously find me on the LOP main page. Or you also can find me in the forums. And I would echo plans uh exhortation to uh, join the forums and write some columns of your own absolutely so no shortage of ways to get in contact let us know your thoughts make sure you tune in next week for our first non-wwe match maverick thank you for joining me for the last two weeks it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here thank you very much i enjoyed myself and i look forward to bringing you back at some point in the future with that being said to all you guys thanks for listening stay safe and have a good one